This morning we're continuing our study of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, as we've seen so far in these last few weeks, Adam and Eve broke God's word. They, they realized they were naked for the first time. Then they hide themselves because of their shame. But then remarkably, as we saw last week, God comes to them in their shame while they're hiding. And instead of driving them away with threats, he, he draws near to them with mercy. And this is highly instructive for us, no matter where we are in our lives today. It tells us that God, from the beginning, has come to sinners in their shame. This is key. Sinners in their shame, not sinners who have kind of worked themselves out of their embarrassing failures. But sinners in their shame, he's moved towards them rather than away from them. Towards them with mercy rather than away from them with threats. God is a God from the beginning who's a friend of sinners. Now, this morning we're going to move into chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. In our text today, 11 through 13, we're going to see God continue to draw Adam and Eve out of hiding with questions. But unfortunately, as we'll see today, his questions lead to more hiding. More questions, more hiding on Adam and Eve's part. This time, though, instead of hiding behind bushes and trees or fig leaves... It's verbal hiding, verbal hiding. Instead of directly answering God's questions about their guilt, Adam and Eve run behind excuses trying to minimize their guilt and evade their responsibility before God. So they're still hiding. Even though they've come out from behind the trees, they're still hiding, this time with their words, as we'll see. Now, before we get to the text, I want to say that and encourage us to collectively confess that we are no different or better than Adam and Eve. In other words, we do exactly what they do here all the time. Our lived experience of this is evidence that we all shared in the first sin. Adam, as the first man stood in the position of the head of the human race, meaning that he acted as a representative for us all. The Bible teaches this clearly in the New Testament, Romans 5, which we'll consider more next week. But we also experience this reality because we do exactly what our Father did. So there's a solidarity between us that the Bible teaches and that we live out. We are just like our Father. We follow him in excuse-making rather than honest confession on the daily. So, as we study this ancient exchange today, we must see it as a mirror meant to show us ourselves. Specifically, how we typically respond to our guilt. Yes, it tells us what Adam and Eve did, but it also tells us what we do. Our study is going to follow the order of the exchange between God and Adam and Eve. We'll look at God's two questions to Adam in verse 11, Adam's evasive response in verse 12, and then God's question to Eve and her evasive response in verse 13. If you want a more catchy outline, here's the best I could come up with. Number one, God's questions, verse 11. 
Verse 11. Number 2, Adam's answer. Verse 12. And number 3, God's question and Eve's answer in verse 13. I told you it was pretty catchy, right? No fancy alliteration this time. God's questions, Adam's answer, then God's question and Eve's answer. We'll start in verse 11. I think it might be wise for us to go ahead and read 8 through 10 so we get a feel for what's just happened. And in case you weren't here last week, this will catch you up to kind of the conversation we're diving into the middle of. Verse 8, they heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now verse 11, he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So number one, verse 11, God's questions, God's questions. God responds to Adam with two more questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now first off, let me say that the fact that God comes and calls on Adam and Eve at all here is an act of sheer grace. He could have destroyed them immediately, but rather he comes with mercy and with questions. This is also an evidence of grace that Adam is able to hear the voice of the Lord and respond. Sin had so polluted his heart that he didn't even want to see the face of God. But for some reason, he can still hear the the Lord's voice. And he's still able to respond. This is a grace from God. That sinners like us, like even right now, this morning, if you're in this room hearing the word of God, you're able to hear and respond. This is grace. This is grace. The ability for you to hear and respond is grace. And so it is here as well. Adam's response again is, uh, excuse me, Adam's response in verse 10 elicits from God two more questions. First, this first question is a bit strange. Who told you that you were naked? Why is this a strange question? Rhetorical question, you don't have to answer that. Because no one has to point out to you when you're naked. It's a condition that you already know you're in. You know if you're naked. So what's God doing? Who told you, Adam, that you're naked? Well, the question behind the question that God is driving at is, Adam, why are you ashamed of your nakedness? This is a rhetorical question meant to draw and show Adam, draw Adam out again and show him that no one is necessary to point out his shame. Who told you that you were naked? Adam, in other words, no one has to tell you that you're naked. You just know that. The serpent didn't tell you. Eve didn't tell you. You didn't stumble past a, uh, a pond in the garden and see your reflection and all of a sudden know 
No one told you that you were naked. You know. You know that. And you know it because you're guilty. It's your guilt, Adam, that's told you that you're naked. Your guilt is what's speaking inside your ears and your conscience that's alerting you to this condition you're in. Sometimes I think we're quick to assume that our feelings of, we might call them the nakedness of shame or embarrassment over our sin, sometimes that feeling we have, we assume, is coming from outside of ourselves. Maybe a friend or a spouse or a parent has been unfairly critical towards us and done one of these drive-by guiltings. And sometimes that does happen. But sometimes our feelings of shame are God's way of telling us that we have something to be ashamed of. Namely, we have real guilt. Through the means of our conscience, God speaks to us about our guilt. Yes, false guilt from friends or relatives is not cool, but true guilt from God is a gift that makes us ready for grace. Why is guilt a gift? Because if you didn't feel it, if you didn't feel guilty before God, you wouldn't know you needed the grace of God. You wouldn't know there was anything wrong. You would keep living your life as if everything was okay when it's not. So we need to pray for wisdom when we feel feelings of guilt or shame and ask the Lord to show us if this is a false guilt coming from outside of us or a true guilt coming from Him and our conscience inside of us. Adam, who told you that you were naked? No one had to tell you this. You already know this because of what you've done. So then, there's the second question followed immediately here. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? There's no commentary from God after that first question. He just follows up immediately with the second question. God's getting right to the real issue. And like a good prosecutor, rather than charge the defendant with lawbreaking, he allows him to acknowledge his own crime. Rather than saying to Adam, Adam, you ate from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. He says, Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? With this question, the Lord again is urging confession, not condemnation. He's seeking to bring Adam out into the light of the truth. So with these back-to-back questions, God is trying to show Adam that his shame is because of his sin. He's trying to show him that his knowledge of his nakedness is a result of breaking God's command. Adam, you're naked because you broke my command. That's the point of his questions. Who told you you're naked? No one. You already know that. Why? Second question, because you broke my command. You broke my command, therefore you know you're naked. In other words, if I could summarize it, your shame, Adam, friends, your shame is often a result, a consequence of your guilt. The issue here for God is crystal clear. He wants Adam to see and own what's true. He's giving him opportunity to confess his sin, to ask for forgiveness. He's inviting Adam to give an honest assessment of what happened. Adam, did you break my command? This is a yes or no question. Adam, Did you break my command? Now, we don't know what would have happened if Adam 
would have come clean and just confessed his sin there on the spot. But we do know what happens when we confess our sins to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9 says. In other words, everyone who is honest to God about their sin receives the forgiveness of God and washing from God. This is the good news of the gospel. Everyone who's honest with God receives forgiveness and cleansing from God. Now I want to then take this a step further and talk about what happens when we confess our sins to other Christians. Many of us have heard our whole lives what happens when we confess our sins. We know 1 John 1, 9, that God will forgive us when we confess our sins to Him. But what about when we confess our sins to other Christians? What happens when you confess your sin to another Christian? We don't have to wonder. The New Testament says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James 5.16. This is one of many one another commands in the New Testament telling us how members of the church are supposed to live together. Michael Lockwood does a great job teaching on this this morning. If you're in here, Michael, great work. The one another commands, they're all over the New Testament. There's 50-something of them. The one another commands are meant to show churches how they're supposed to live together. One of them is James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So this verse says that it should be normal for church members to be honest with other church members about their sins. But that's weird. No one does that, right? Who talks to other people about their dirtiest, darkest secrets? Well, according to Scripture, church members are supposed to be doing that. This is supposed to be normal practice amongst church members. We're either confessing our sins or suppressing our sins. I can't think of a third option. You're either confessing or suppressing. And only one of these strategies will actually help you. As James 5.16 says, that you may be healed. Or Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, keeping silent about your sins zaps your spiritual energy. Confessing your sin, however, refreshes you and recharges you in the Lord. This is not some Catholic rite or ritual where you go to a priest at, at a church. This is something you can do with the person sitting on the pew beside you, assuming you know each other relatively well and you trust one another. This is something that should be normal practice for church members, and it's something that leads to great liberation. Listen to how Ray Ortland explains this. He says, confessing your sins to Jesus alone isn't that hard, is it? It's a good thing to do, don't get me wrong, but does private confession to him alone free you all that much? Then he says this, confessing your sins openly to brothers or sisters you respect, that's different. It's like dying. It destroys the false self you've been projecting. But when you start revealing the sin-sick person you really are, Jesus himself becomes more real, and you become more real, and friendship becomes more real. You exhale and relax because you finally belong. End quote. 
In other words, walking in the light leads to life. Hiding in the darkness leads to despair and death. So you, friends, you have to choose whether you're going to be impressive or whether you're going to be known. You can't be both. Are you going to continue to live under the facade and the weight of that facade of impressiveness or are you going to choose the freedom of being known? Not by everybody at the same level, but by someone. Those who obey this command, find a brother or sister to confess sin to and pray with, James says, will be healed. Will be healed. Healing, not scolding, is what we need. It's what Jesus promises. Yes, James 5 is about literal, physical healing. But there's no end to the kind of healings that God can give. Amen? What if, as you start to live this out, as you start doing this with another Christian brother or sister, what if healing came in the form of finally feeling forgiven by God? Feeling clean inside like a kid again. Feeling hopeful about the future. Feeling zealous for the Lord instead of like you want to crawl up in a ball and die. What if the shaming voice within you is quieted? That voice that tells you you're worthless and you're nothing because of what you've done. What if that voice is quieted and the voice of the Holy Spirit affirming you as a son or daughter of God is increased? What if healing comes to you in ways that you didn't expect? This is the promise of the Bible. As Bodie Bauckham says, I don't write the mail, I'll just deliver it. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another and you will be healed. If you don't do that, then stop wondering why you're stuck right where you are. You're choosing to be impressive and to live out this facade of strength and righteousness and holiness and whatever rather than being known. God wants to work healing in our lives to those who start to live to be known rather than live to be impressive. So maybe a simple application question. And I want to pause here. I want you to maybe write this down if you need to. But who, friends, who are you confessing your sins to? You're like Jesus. Great, amen. Start there. Never skip him. Who else? Who else besides Jesus? Who are you confessing your sins to? I mean like being really honest with it. Like, man, I, I really struggled this week with lust. Or, you know, I, I really been, I just really had a hard week. That's great, but, but we can hide behind platitudes so easily. Like, who have you told what you actually did? Not for shaming purposes, but for healing purposes. For healing. Not, for, not to be scolded, but to be healed. Who, brothers and sisters, who are you confessing your sins to? Living this command out is a marker of spiritual maturity. Immature Christians have a PhD in other people's sins, but are still in middle school about their own sins. Mature Christians see and own and confess their sins to God and other Christians regularly. Immature Christians are quick to assign labels to all the people they disagree with, but slow to assign labels to their own sin. 
Mature Christians realize that we all stumble in many ways, James 3.2. That they're beset with weaknesses, Hebrews 5.2. So they're slow to condemn and quick to extend charity. Growing in the Lord results in less focus on others' sin and more focus on our own. Brothers and sisters, who are you confessing your sins to? Who are you confessing your sins to? Verse 11, these two questions, God's two questions to Adam, aren't a sign of God's ignorance, but are rather an invitation into his mercy. As the all-knowing detective, he's prodding the criminals to come clean. And he just may be prodding some here today to come clean before him and before someone else. So number one, we've seen God's questions. Number two, Adam's answer. Unfortunately, the graced arrow of God's questions doesn't elicit a simple and honest acknowledgement of guilt from Adam. Rather, verse 12 shows us that his answer is more of a deflection than a confession. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, Adam's answer isn't necessarily wrong. That is what happened. The woman gave him fruit, and he ate. But it's not exactly right either. Instead of a simple, yes, Lord, I ate of the tree of which you commanded me not to eat, he rehearses what happened as if God had forgotten what happened. What's going on here? What's Adam doing? Well, he's trying to excuse himself by blaming the woman and subtly, not so subtly, implying that God was also at fault because he's the one who gave him the woman. Adam's answer reveals how quickly sin had corrupted his heart. Instead of a simple yes, he becomes devious and defensive. He says that the woman and God are the real instigators in what happened. The criminal paints himself as the victim. He plays up their part, plays down his. He doesn't even mention his own involvement until the very end of the verse. I ate. So yes, he finally admits his guilt, but he's just minimized what happened, his part in what happened. His confession of sin is delayed by his attempts to wiggle around the truth. The divisive effects of sin are in full display here. Notice, as soon as the heat was turned up, man turned on his dearest companion, the woman. What is this, the second word that comes out of his mouth? The woman. Adam, did you do this? The woman. The woman whom you gave to me. She gave me fruit. Of the tree. Adam is suggesting that Eve is the real offender. He goes from sheer ecstasy over Eve, over in chapter 2, verse 23, creating this song, this poem over Eve and her creation. He goes from ecstasy to throwing her under the bus as soon as he could. He betrays her with cold and calculated words. It turns out that their, their sin didn't unite them, but rather divided them, turned them against each other. Now, Adam's words focus on the woman, but he blames God for providing the woman. The woman whom you gave to be with me. It's as if he's saying, God, you put this dangerous creature here beside me. This is your fault. Adam implies that a better God would have given, wouldn't have given him Eve. 
He's becoming like Satan, who had already argued that a better God wouldn't withhold anything from his people. Like the serpent, Adam says that God's good gift is actually malicious. He's minimizing and criticizing the goodness of God. He says that God's good gift is the source of his trouble. The woman you gave me, she gave me fruit, and I ate. He's saying that the woman is the source of his trouble. And man, we still do this all the time. Men, sometimes when they're caught in any impropriety, they'll often say that it was the woman's fault. We see this when men justify their lust as a result of the immodesty of women. Men say, she caused me to lust because of what she was wearing. Jesus, though, directly and kindly says, no, 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 men, your adulterous heart is what caused you to lust. Sure, though modesty is jeered and all but forgotten today, modesty is a good and godly thing. Paul says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. 1 Timothy 2.9. But... Men, what we do with the immodesty of women is on us. It is our responsibility. Yes, modesty is praiseworthy, but men are responsible for their self-control and purity. We can have both truths at the same time. Same time. It is possible to walk and chew gum. Amen? You can affirm two truths. Modesty is praiseworthy, and men, you're responsible if you've, though you haven't touched, you took what isn't yours in your mind. You're responsible for that. Adam says that the Lord gave him the woman who then gave him the fruit, same Hebrew word. He's implying that God is ultimately responsible for what happened through the means of the woman. He tries to subtly place the guilt on God and the woman. He's trying to exonerate himself by pointing away from himself to the woman and to God. Now some might ask, is God guilty for what happened here? The Bible is not slow to assign divine responsibility to all kinds of human affliction. Let me say this sentence again, because some of you might not believe this, and I pray that you will. I pray that you will. The Bible is not slow to assign divine responsibility to all kinds of human affliction. For example, Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Amos 3.6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And the verses could be multiplied. But nowhere in the Bible... Does it say that God is responsible for what happened here or for human sin in general? The key text is James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God has never tempted you and will never tempt you. Sin was here and is now the deliberate choice of men and women. 
Adam is hoping to evade responsibility for his autonomous actions by shifting blame to the woman and to God. But God or the woman is not responsible for what he did. Now, some will start to speculate, well, why would God allow the serpent to do what he did in the first place? Well, the narrative doesn't answer that question. This narrative doesn't answer that. What it does state clearly is that man, not God, is responsible for what happened here. That whole walk and chew gum thing is so key for us in our theology. It's possible, indeed biblical, to say God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens in the world. And we are absolutely responsible for what we've done. The Bible teaches both everywhere. If you want to read more on that, study that, dig into that hard but, hard but freeing truth. See John Piper's new book, Providence. It's only about 700 pages. He leaves no stone in the Bible unturned. God is sovereign, but we are responsible. We see that right here. Adam's interesting. Adam's excuse making ends up backfiring on him. Look over at chapter 3, verse 17. After God has heard them out, then he starts levying out the consequences, first to the serpent, then to the woman, then finally to Adam, verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God tells him that his excuse is the reason why everything went sideways. Adam is, Adam is saying back over in Chapter 3, verse 12, Adam is saying that he sinned because he listened to the woman. And God is saying, verse 17, exactly. Exactly. What Adam uses as an excuse, God uses as an indictment. His excuse is the ground of his condemnation. The point here isn't that we don't listen to women. My goodness, if you know my wife, you know she's way smarter than I am. I run everything by her. That's not the point. The point is that what happened here is that Adam didn't lead and protect his wife. Rather, he chose to follow her in passivity. The relational order was inverted, and the fallout was catastrophic and irreversible. And it's still wrecking marriages and homes today. Men who don't protect and lead, and women who seek seek to circumvent the leadership of their husbands. In his kindness, God will often show us the foolishness of our excuses, just like he does here. Kindness because he's trying to get us to the truth. If it's the truth that sets us free, then God has to work backwards through our excuses to get us back down to what's true. Because in that, we'll find freedom. So Adam's response here to God's questions are his continued attempts to hide from God. This is verbal hiding. Instead of a simple, yes, I did what you said not to do, he paints the woman and God as the real problems before he finally gets around to confessing his sin. These are the words of a man who is spiritually dead. So we've seen God's questions. We've seen Adam's answer. Number three, verse 13, God's question and Eve's answer. 
verse 13, God's question and Eve's answer. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. God's question to Eve carries the force of, What in the world have you done? Again, he's not fact-finding. This isn't a question for the sake of information. He knows what happened. What in the world have you done? And then Eve's response, like Adam's, is factually correct. The serpent deceived me, and then I ate. That's exactly what happened. But it doesn't excuse her disobedience. She does confess her sin there at the end. I ate, but it's only after she brings up what the serpent did. So her answer is similar to Adam's. Both are quick to explain the circumstances of their sin, but neither are showing any signs of contrition. Eve's answer, however, does lack some of the more devious aspects of Adam's answer. She's still subtly defending herself, but at least she's not blaming God or Adam. And she does admit that she was deceived. Who of us likes to admit that, yeah, I was tricked. (laughs) I got played on that one. No one likes to admit that. She admits that she was deceived. She was tricked. The serpent fed her a lion and she gullibly took it. But like Adam, nonetheless, she shifts blame. Unlike Adam, she can rightly claim to be, to be the victim of deception, but she doesn't attribute what she did to God or to her husband. She's humble enough to admit that she's been fooled, kind enough to not throw Adam, her husband, under the bus, and wise enough not to impugn God's character. Verses 12 through 13, nonetheless, are still showing us that both Adam and Eve are trying to shift blame onto someone else. This shows us just how much the serpent has influenced them. Think of this, just within moments, within moments of interacting with Satan, he's now changed their whole way of thinking. They're, 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 both, they're both distorting the truth, accusing anyone but themselves, and not owning their sin. Now, as I said, we have to get this, or we'll miss the point of this passage. This kind of behavior is what we do all the time. This text is about us, isn't it? We all make excuses for our sin. When confronted with our guilt, we'll run away through any loophole we can find as fast as we can. We'll wiggle out of responsibility for our actions in any way that we can. And this is endemic to the human race. No one doesn't do this. We might actually do this in more ways than you realize. I was really helped this week by a book by Cornelius Planinga, his book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a little book on sin. Planinga describes several ways that we try to evade responsibility. He talks about conforming to our peer groups, where we're pressured to act in a certain way or not act in a certain way, in ways that the group expects us to act. For example, when a family chooses to not challenge abusive behaviors because that would disrupt the peace of the family, the family is shirking its responsibility to do what's right 
by conforming to their own peer group standards. When we shut our eyes to an injustice, when we look the other way, when we pretend to be ignorant of evil, we're conforming. Many times we're conforming to our peer groups. But Plantinga also goes on to say it's a form of conniving. Conniving. Now, connivance isn't always active conspiracy. It can also be simply looking the other way when someone does something wrong. Actively looking away when someone does something wrong. When another employee, when a leader, when a pastor, when a president who does something that's obviously wrong and we look away, it's this connivance. We're conniving, we're scheming to do something wrong. Planning goes on to say that sometimes we neglect our responsibility by just leaving town, by literally just leaving a situation. We're called to stay in face. He says we sometimes use our specializations to deny our responsibility. We'll say things like, I'm just here to do my job. Sometimes we'll use our specializations to justify the wrong that we do. Like when an attorney manipulates the technicalities of the law while avoiding, avoiding questions about the guilt or innocence of their clients. Jesus said the Pharisees were wrong. Even though they were specialists in certain aspects of the law, they neglected the far more important matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Another way we evade responsibility is through what planning calls cocooning. Cocooning. This has nothing to do with caterpillars. Cocooning. What is that? Well, he says it's when we retreat, when we retreat from the small world of our family, a few friends, our work, our church, when we retreat into that world and busy ourselves with things that are only part of that small circle. Planinga describes several ways we do this, and I want to read this to you because this was very convicting to me this week, and maybe it'll be helpful for you as well. Planinga says we do this when we fail to welcome strangers into our lives or homes. We don't go out to meet them where they are. We do not inform ourselves of events abroad and cannot locate them on maps or in context. We dismiss the needs of future generations. We have never dealt seriously with a homeless person. We do not grieve over news stories of poverty or starvation. And we make only token efforts to relieve such suffering by our charity. Claiming allegiance to the Christ who speaks in active imperatives, go, tell, witness, declare, proclaim, we Christians nonetheless prefer to keep the bread of life in our own cupboard and speak of it only to those who already have it. Then he asked this, do we subconsciously suppose that in such inbred silence we can keep our dignity and unbelievers can go to hell where they belong? End quote. Has our cocooning insulated us from the pains and realities of this world? The last thing Plantinga mentions, he talks about how we use amusement to evade our responsibility. Amusement. He says that while it's good to take a break from work and laugh a little bit, our culture is obsessed with amusement. Obsessed is the key word because just look at what entertainers and athletes make compared to everyone else. 
That's enough right there to make you angry, amen? We're obsessed with people we don't even know doing things that don't even matter. It's clear that amusement has become for many an evasion of the main business of life. Planninga says, when people begin to focus their lives more on amusement than on doing their work well, raising their children securely, gaining an education, and helping those in need, they begin to evade responsibility, end quote. In other words, when you're, when you're obsessed with, with amusement, then you're not loving your neighbor. You're evading your responsibility to the world, to your neighbors, to your, maybe to your own family, to your church perhaps. For example, when we know more about the performers in the Super Bowl halftime show than we do about our own neighbors, something is off. Look, I was bobbing my head with all of you last weekend, okay? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. We amuse ourselves to numb ourselves from the main business of life. Wiggling out of responsibility for our actions is endemic to the, to the human race. We all do this. We learned it from Adam. We're very good at it. Rather than take responsibility for our actions, we're prone to find a circumstance, a person, a mood, or even God to blame. I want to add a, ca- a caveat here. This does not mean that it's wrong to dig into the reasons for our actions. You might think that I'm saying, hey, just say what you did and get over it. You know, confess it, repent, done. Yes, you can do that. You should do that. But it's not wrong to be honest about what's happened to you. Being honest about our stories, diving into them with the courage and humility to name what's true is not the same as finding excuses for sin. Understanding why we're prone to sin in particular ways helps us know where we need Jesus' particular help and healing but it doesn't remove our responsibility for our actions. For example, I struggle with anger at home. I struggle with anger at home. I've confessed this and continue to confess this to a few close brothers, my wife, and healing has come, albeit slower than I would like. What's tempting is to justify my anger as a result of the home I grew up in, but I'm called to own it as mine. Yes, I need and have and will take the time to sit with professional counselors, brothers in Christ, and my dear wife to consider how my past is shaping my present. But processing my past doesn't exonerate my present. Explaining the context of sin is not the same as denying guilt. It's possible for me and you to say at the same time that I grew up in an angry and abusive home and in my anger I have sinned. Both are true. The former helps me understand how I arrived where I am. The latter helps me move forward through confession, repentance, and healing in Jesus' name. We might be prone to do one really well at the the expense of the other. To assume that the past doesn't matter. We just need to confess, confess, confess. 
or that we, we just need to talk about circumstances and never really get around to owning what's, what, 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 what we've done. I don't know. I think that's a skewed approach. So, brothers and sisters, what part of your past are you ignoring? What part of your past that is shaping your present are you not willing to look at and acknowledge? And correspondingly, brothers and sisters, where do you need to own your guilt? What areas do you need to start taking responsibility for? This is a hard message because it touches us so deeply and we all do this stuff. We struggle with this stuff left and right. The good news, though, is that God comes to sinners and strugglers like us. God comes to minimizers like us. He comes to us like He did with Adam and Eve. He comes to us with mercy, seeking to draw us out, rather than threats, seeking to condemn us. God's invitation for confession is not meant to shame us, but to free us. Not meant to condemn us, but to heal us. Not meant to embarrass us, but to change us. And the ground of this, the ground of God's posture toward you, is the cross of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? On the cross, Jesus took the blame for people who don't take the blame. Jesus is the one person in history who said, the the buck stops here. I'm not going to pass it along, even though he could have, because he hadn't done anything wrong. He's the one person who hasn't done, didn't do what we all do. Pass responsibility along. No, instead, the sinless God-man stood before Pilate. He stood before the crowds. He stood there like a man, taking all the blame for things he never did. He stood there saying, give me the blame for my children. I know what they've done, and I know what they've done to cover up what they've done. I know what they're doing right now to cover up what they've done, but they're my kids. Give it to me. I want it. They're my kids, and I love them, and I'm going to do this to set them free. Do you believe that? That's the reality that starts to loosen you from your wanting to be impressive. Christ died for everything that you're unwilling to talk about. You're free, brothers and sisters. You're free. You're like, well, I don't know. Someone might scold you. I hope that doesn't happen. Someone might shame. Someone might use what I say against me. I hope that doesn't happen. But the Christ who took your blame also wants to heal you. If you'll come low before him and come low before your brothers and sisters, Our guilt for our sin is ours alone, but we don't have to carry it. We can pass it on to Jesus by trusting in him to take it. Because of the cross, he can take the blame for you so that you can be free from trying to impress God and man, free to live in open and honest relationships and set on a new path of healing in his name. But the cross of Jesus Christ also shows us that Jesus wants to do that. Do you believe that? That he wants to take the blame for you. That he wants to set you free. That everyone who comes clean before him will be free. If the Son of Man, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take your word and write it on our hearts. Help us to process what we've heard and do the things we need to do. I pray that we would not just be hearers this morning, but doers. I pray that many, many, many who've never even fathomed sitting down with a brother or sister and, and telling them what, what actually is going on, I pray that many would be emboldened, encouraged to do that. I pray that we would obey James 5.16, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, and that we would be healed. That we wouldn't be like Adam and Eve. That we would be quick to own guilt. The sacrifices you desire are a broken and contrite heart. Please give us these things, we pray in Jesus' name.